Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 13th, 2022, and the Trump News Circus continues. The front pages of all the three leading national uh, American newspapers, serious newspapers, are full of stuff on Trump. Uh, according to the New York Times, which is the doyen of newspapers, a Jan 6 panel votes to subpoena Trump, setting up a court fight. Um, the Washington Post pretty much echoes this. The Washington Post, of course, owned by the owner of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal, owned by Rupert Murdoch, even uh, it doesn't, I think, lead with the Jan 6 committee to subpoena Trump, but at least covers it. So in a way, the newspapers, both from left to right, uh, the, the Post, I think, is on the left, the Journal on the right, the times in the center are all covering the most important news of the day or, or that's what it would seem it seems to me uh perhaps that american media and newspapers are are working but i'm not sure that my guest would agree and of course there's cnn as well my guest is the author of a new book actually it's a couple of years old but it's coming out with a new edition called democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Age. The author is Victor Pickard, who is at the Annenberg School um, in Philadelphia, the University of Philadelphia. Uh, Victor, respond to the idea that seems to me, at least as a news consumer, that things aren't so bad, that Trump stuff is getting covered pretty well by mainstream media. What's the problem? Or, or am I missing the point? Well, it's a great question, Andrew, and it's understandable that a casual perception might suggest that our news media are doing quite well. Uh, as you noted, there are three vibrant national newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. If you look online on your device or any screen, you can access any manner of what seems to be uh, diverse news and information. But beyond that surface, beyond that veneer, is a more troubling reality. And that is our commercial news media system, especially for local journalism, has largely collapsed. Beyond those three large newspapers that we're talking about, newspapers are struggling across the country. We've lost over 60% of our newsroom employees since the early 2000s. We've lost a quarter of our newspapers. The newspaper industry has shed tens of billions of dollars every year. The advertising revenue model is largely irreparably gone. So we really need to think beyond uh, that casual, that, that surface veneer that things seem fine to understand that we're actually suffering a journalism crisis and by extension, a democracy crisis. You're also the author of an interesting local news study on Philadelphia, Philadelphia's news media system, uh, which audiences are undeserved. What's happened locally then, Victor? What are the reasons? Can we blame it on the Internet? Can we blame it on corporate media? You're also the author of another book, uh, an older book called America's Battle for Media Democracy, The Triumph of Corporate Libertarianism and the Future of, of, of Media Reform. 
Um, what's the problem with local newspapers? Why are they dying or why have they died? Well, as you implied, there is a popular narrative out there that the internet has killed journalism. And there's a grain of truth to that because it was the migration of readers and advertisers to the web that led to this dissolution of the advertising revenue model. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. We have to go back in history to see that our newspaper industry became overly dependent on advertising revenue going back over 125 years ago, where advertising made up as much as 80% of their entire revenues. The rest came from readers and various kinds of subsidies. But because they were so dependent on advertising, when it moved to the web where digital advertising pays pennies to the dollar of traditional print advertising, that business model collapsed and there really wasn't an alternative. They've tried paywalls and digital subscriptions, which again, seem to be working for the three largest newspapers, our national, you might even call them international newspapers. But for most size newspapers, that's simply not going to work. And that has led to an utter collapse of local journalism, which is- talk, the, Yeah, talk me through it, Victor. It's, sure. it's, it's an intriguing narrative. Perhaps include Craigslist in the middle of this because sure. Craigslist um, inadvertently killed local media. Perhaps you might explain how and why. Yeah, that's a great point uh, because often Google and Facebook get all the blame, which are the big bad duopoly, which are taking about anywhere up to 80% or more of every new digital advertising dollar. So they certainly share some of the blame as well. And I feel bad for Craigslist always getting blamed, but it's true that that took the classified advertising revenue stream, which was huge for many newspapers, took it completely out of their margins. And that led to a major financial blow to, to especially local journalism, weekly newspapers, for example, um, but again, I think that does begin that, that sort of misses the point, which is it wasn't Craigslist's fault necessarily. It was also the business model's fault. There never right. should no, have yeah, been and a I'm situation. I'm not blaming uh, Craig Newmark, who I think feels enormously guilty. In fact, he much does. of the wealth he realized through Craigslist has been reinvested or an attempt to That's reinvest true. in media. I'm, I'm not blaming Craigslist. It, as I said, it was an, an accidental. Uh, mm -hmm. an accidental consequence. Yeah. But in very simple terms, what, what you're saying then is that um, local newspapers were overly reliant on advertising revenue. So when you got something like Craigslist that came along in the middle of the 90s and gave out online ads for free, everyone who used to pay for ads in newspapers now advertise for free online on Craigslist and therefore, the, the local newspaper industry went up in smoke. Is that your argument? Yes. And I would just add a couple more details to that narrative, which I think is spot on. But we have to understand that newspapers generally had monopolistic positions. They were local monopolies in their given markets. So anyone who wanted to advertise anything to anyone had to go through the local newspaper. Advertisers never really cared deeply about local journalism. They were essentially subsidizing local journalism, but that was not their major aim. They were trying to capture the attention of local populations. But once there became a more convenient way of doing that, they jumped ship. And there's, no, there, there's a, a growing argument that if 
Facebook and Google just share some of the advertising revenue back to the publishers, that will save journalism. But I think that misses the core problem. Newspapers have lost their monopoly status. The business model is irreparably gone. So you talk about monopoly status at the local level. Um, explain what you mean by that. When I think of monopoly status, for example, my internet provider here where I live in San Francisco, I have no choice. I have to go with Comcast. Yes, uh, as do I. Comcast, but we have no choice. Right. Uh, but there were always, uh, and, it, and it required a huge amount of, it, 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 there is no way I can get any other internet access. But in the old days, there were always local newspapers. So what do you mean by monopolies? These weren't enforced, were they? Why, why did they exist and how did they come about? It's a great question. And you're right. Unlike uh, internet service providers, it's a different kind of monopoly, although I think it, that's a great example. And of course, Comcast national headquarters is here in Philadelphia. We're, we we're all hate our internet. <laughs> internet. It's true. It's and like and I've written another. Parents, we hate our internet access providers and and we hate our publishers. Um, th that's the it, nature of life, isn't it, Victor? It, it's true, although it's not inevitable. And a lot of this is determined by the policies that we as a society put in place. We could have competition policies. We could break up monopolies. We could have prevented this from happening. I take that point, but let's go back to this idea that you're suggesting that somehow there were these, what, corporately established local monopolies is that how it worked with local newspapers sure it happened over time and i'm sure you may recall from your history classes and, and old textbooks that there used to be there was the the partisan press era that gradually gave way to the penny press uh model but this often glosses over what really was happening which was there was a growing shift towards, again, advertising revenue. So the press began to commercialize. It, their advertising had been around from the earliest days of newspaper publishing, but it never became so predominant until the late 1800s. And as that happened, you saw the rise of one newspaper towns um, so that there were very few new entrants. It wasn't like new newspapers were popping up everywhere. In fact, quite the contrary, by the late 1800s, early 1900s, we see the rise of newspaper chains and each uh, town typically only had maybe a handful of newspapers at best, but they were already worried about one newspaper towns in the early 1900s. In the 1940s, which my first book looked at, there was congressional hearings on the loss of community journalism. And so, you know, a lot of this had to do with these kind of economic shifts we can always, as a society, put policies into place to try to prevent that from happening. But oftentimes, it's the market that gradually well, tends let's, to... Well, let's use sure. your, uh, your city, Philadelphia. Was that a, a, a one newspaper town in the, in the 20th century? Uh, more recently, we've had two newspapers that were uh, jointly owned. And now, interestingly, they are owned by a local nonprofit, or I, you could think of it as a as a, a low profit, it's called a public benefit corporation, the Lenfest Institute, which owns the newspapers. The newspapers are still for profit, but they're owned by a nonprofit. So it's an interesting model we have here in Philly. I mean, and, and I'm thinking the reason I asked that question is in San Francisco, I think now is a kind of one and a quarter newspaper town. There's the San Francisco Chronicle uh, and the Examiner. The Examiner's just been restarted. 
but historically it was a, at least a two newspaper town. Plus you had other newspapers in the Bay Area, in Oakland, the Mercury News. Uh, so San Francisco doesn't work with that model, nor does New York, does it? Oh, well, I mean, just even listening to you describe it, we're talking about maybe two or three uh, newspapers in our largest cities. But for many towns, we're talking about one newspaper. Um, so, you know, it really was not a competitive landscape by any stretch of the imagination, but it was better than what we have today. And I think. Right. So is your critique, um, Victor, that these newspapers chose the wrong business model, that they should have been charging more for the product rather than relying on advertising? It's a great question. And many people make that argument that, you know, basically these are self-inflicted wounds, that newspapers should have been more innovative. They should have come up with a different business model. I guess my argument pushes back against that narrative because I, I think there really isn't a winning business model for most news organizations online, that there isn't a way to digitally monetize their content that will sustain the level of journalism that we need as a democratic society. And there's a lot of evidence that backs us up. It's one of the reasons why paywalls aren't working for a lot of news organizations. People aren't willing to pay or are, are unwilling or unable to pay for the news that we need. So it's not that's not going to be the answer either. Well, but Victor, um, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post and mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal. I pay for all of those. They exist behind a paywall and they're all quite profitable. So what's wrong with the yeah. paywall model? First of all, you're, you're a fine citizen for paying for your news. And I, I still get the Sunday uh, New York Times delivered here at our house. But the fact is not enough people are going to pay for most size newspapers. Those three are the exceptions because they have a larger subscription base. And even the Washington Post recently has been suffering financially. So for the long term, we can't even be completely confident that this business model will, will work for them either. But it's certainly not working for smaller newspapers. There's just not enough people willing to pay. And if you think about it as a de democratic society, we need news. We need to be informed regardless of whether it's profitable, regardless of whether people want to pay for it. So we've got to find another means of support, a non-market-based means to provide the news that we need. Uh, uh, Victor, you need people to want to read these things. I mean, you True. can have as many publicly supported local newspapers as you want, but people still need to read them. And people seem much happier. For example, we did a show on TikTok, uh, which we call the Digital Brave New World. People are much more interested in being on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or on YouTube than they are in reading new local newspapers. It doesn't matter what their business model is. It doesn't matter whether they're free, whether you even pay people to read them. This is a good point. However, studies show that even most of the original news and information that we glean from social media sources actually originate with the struggling newspaper industry. So even in their beleaguered state, we still need newspapers. They're the last bastion, the last major bastion for producing original news and information. They basically act as an informational feeder for our entire news media ecosystem. So we still need them regardless of whether people are visiting the New York Times homepage or not. What about the innovation on the internet? Recently, I, I did a show with Isaac Saul, a very innovative young entrepreneur, a media a journalist entrepreneur. He has a, a new product called Tangle, uh, and he covers the news uh, every issue, every day. He, and, I, and I rather like it. He, he comes up with a, a subject, maybe Trump or 
um, perhaps even the death of newspapers and covers it from every angle. He seemed to be making a success of it. It operates on Substack um, and he's doing a good job. Why isn't that a solution? I don't think it's a systemic. In fact, I'm quite certain it's not a systemic fix for the news deserts problem that we're dealing with here in the States. You will see niche outlets and you will see fantastic experiments emerge from the commercial sector. I certainly would not begrudge that by any means. I hope we see more of that. But we also have to be absolutely clear that that's not going to solve the local journalism crisis. It's not going to cover the boring stuff coverage of the local state house, the school board, city hall, that doesn't pay. That's the people don't click on those, on those stories. Advertisers don't like those stories. People aren't going to pay for those stories. And yet as a democratic society, we still need that kind of reporting. So we've got to find another way of paying for it. What about the digital ecosystem? You're on Twitter. Most of us for better or worse are on Twitter. A lot of people now are covering local news. They're going to their local boards and their local meetings and reporting on it for free. Isn't there an evolving ecosystem which may have a different kind of business model, maybe not even a real business model in which concerned citizens simply write about this stuff and give out their information for free? Isn't that another fix? That has been considered. Uh, we've been waiting for that new model to emerge and evolve for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. And I think we've lost at least a decade waiting for some new organic model, a new technological fix. Some, for the longest time, people thought there was a magic app that would solve the journalism crisis. And people would say, yes, yeah, citizen journalism. We all, we all have these devices. Mm. We don't need institutions. We don't need professional journalists anymore. We can be the media. And sometimes that works beautifully. I've seen it work, and I, I think we should celebrate it when it does, but that's not, that's not reliable. So what are you suggesting? Are you suggesting a public media, BBC-style, publicly-owned newspapers or radio stations or television networks? I sometimes invoke the BBC simply because Americans tend to get warm, fuzzy feelings uh, towards the BBC, and it sort of broadens our imagination, or at least well, gets uh, us uh, so sorry to jump in here, Victor. The BBC isn't even the BBC anymore. So I know I lived in London a couple of years ago and my British friend, whatever romanticism I still held towards the BBC was beaten out of me by my British friends. So I get that. Nonetheless, it's far superior to anything we have here in the States, especially thinking just in terms of maintaining a robust public media system. We don't have that. The folks in the UK spend about $100 a year towards their towards the BBC. We in the States spend about a buck fifty towards our public system. So our system is impoverished. So when I hear about the problems that Brits have with the BBC, I wish we had those problems here in the States. Nonetheless, I certainly wouldn't say we simply replicate the BBC here. I just use that to get Americans thinking in terms of government support for media and that we don't slide into a totalitarian society, as many people assume. That's often the knee-jerk reaction anytime you talk about public media subsidies, even though these subsidies are as American as apple pie. We can look to the postal system from the 1790s that was basically a newspaper delivery infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Newspapers were massively subsidized. So I just try to get the conversation to thinking about how could we publicly support a new media system? What are the public investments that we could imagine? And that's, that's where I'd like to start the conversation. 
What about NPR, Victor? Uh, it seems as if NPR is an odd mix of public and private, strongly local with a focus on, on, on each market. Is NPR a model that you like or is it part of the problem? Oh, I, I mean, I personally like listening to NPR sometimes, I'll confess, but I would have to say it's probably part of the problem. Uh, it's certainly not the solution. As you noted, it's a hybrid model. It's basically a misnomer to even call it public broadcasting. Anyone who will listen to any length of a NPR program will be treated to all manner of, of radio advertisements and, and what's euphemistically called enhanced underwriting by various uh, corporations, as well as foundations. And of course, individuals might donate as well. But that's not the ideal model I'd, I'd imagine. However, we could use our already existing public broadcasting system, NPR and PBS, as the building blocks, as a, as a beginning public infrastructure that we could convert into something else that we could expand on and restructure. So I would definitely wouldn't say throw it out. I would say mend it, don't end it. I mean, conservatives in particular, as you suggested, um, are very nervous about this. Uh, who, who is going to control these public newspapers, these local newspapers? Who's going to determine editorial policy? Who's going to guarantee that they don't all become like the Washington Post or the New York Times, which tend to veer towards the left? It's always a legitimate concern about ownership and bias and especially just control of the newsroom. These newsrooms must remain independent. That has to be an ironclad law um, that we maintain regardless of publicly subsidizing them. And I think democratic countries around the world have figured out how to do this. We can do it here in the States as well. But in this, this ideal scenario that I sketch out in a lot of my work, I'm really talking about not just public in name, but actually owned and controlled by the public, that local communities own and control their own newsrooms, that journalists come from the, these local communities. And I think you know, we can point to various models uh, throughout history and things that are beginning to emerge today. But again, it's going to take tremendous structural reform. We do have data that shows that even among conservatives who might hate the media, they typically have fonder feelings towards their local media. And even for public media, there's not as much distrust on the right as you might imagine. So what are the models, Victor, historically? What, what do you point to and say, we can be like that, we can emulate that, either historically or perhaps um, in other countries? And don't use, please, Denmark as a model because they always come up. Okay, H how about Norway? Um, but I, I do think that there are Nordic countries and as well as other democracies around the world. We did a recent study that shows how the U.S. is literally off the chart for how little we allocate towards our, our public media. And yet the Economist Democracy Index that comes out every year shows that those countries with the strongest public broadcasting systems also happen to have the strongest democracies. The U.S. is now considered a flawed democracy, as I'm sure you know. But beyond public broadcasting, I would look at things like there was a, mun a municipal newspaper, uh, an experiment launched in, in LA in the early uh, 1900s. There have been various experiments with um, uh, publicly supported newspapers, newspapers that did not rely on advertising. Um, I'm thinking about the PM, which was a newspaper here uh, in, in New York City in the 1940s 
but also we need to point to our nonprofit sector. We're actually going through what should be thought of as like a new golden era for nonprofit uh, uh, news experiments. And that, those are popping up all over the place. And what about the role of independent magazines? I mean, The Atlantic comes to mind. They have enormous support. Aren't they an example of the way in which philanthropy can work? The widow of, of Steve Jobs um, has poured tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars into The Atlantic. Yeah, this is sometimes referred to as the benevolent billionaire model for saving journalism. Of course, it begs the observation that not all billionaires are benevolent. Some have uh, political agendas. At the very least, they might not be in it for the long term. They might have their pet issues that they want to see covered, um, even if these are important issues. Uh, so I don't think it's the ideal model. And yet, I think it, in cases where philanthropies or rich benefactors can support a newspaper here and there. Jeff Bezos is supporting the Washington Post. Um, there are some concerns there, but I think sometimes that can work out. Yet again, we do have to be clear that that's not going to support all newspapers across the board. That's not going to address the news deserts problem where you know, tens of millions of Americans, basically one fifth of all Americans live in a news desert where there is no local news media whatsoever. So that's the problem I'm talking about. And I don't think this, you know, the, the nonprofit, even the best experiments that are out there uh, aren't capable of reaching all of those news deserts. Victor, are we assuming that you call these uh, publications of the future newspapers, but these are all online. People aren't physically picking up newspapers anymore, True. are they? I mean, or, the, the future of all media is digital. Is that? No doubt. Yeah, you are absolutely right. And that's why I really think we need to move beyond even talking about newspapers. What I advocate for is creating a new anchor institution that I refer to as a public media center, that every community should have a public media center um, that's mul a multimedia hub. So these distinctions really don't even make sense anymore, whether we're talking about video or audio or or print-based uh, paper. You're absolutely right. The dead tree version of the newspaper is only being read by old people like myself and only on Sundays. Um, so I think that uh, we really, you're, you're absolutely right. We need to think of, it, think of it as media, not newspapers. And, and how much of a, a radical reform of education and society needs to go along with your vision? Uh, we did a show with the a German media scholar, I'm sure you know his work, Bernard Perkson, uh, who talks about something called an editorial society, outlines this in his new book, Digital Fever, Taming the Big Business of Disinformation. I, I, I'm guessing he's probably in a similar camp to you. Do this, does, this, does your vision need to go along with other structural reforms of education in particular, so that kids understand the value of media and understand how to read online and how to get information? Well, certainly media literacy, uh, which is a, a favorite reform initiative for, for many folks, should always be part of this program, um, of, of this reformist project. But we also have to be clear that that's kind of an individualistic approach to what should be seen as a systemic social problem, a structural problem. Um, but I agree that Ideally, these reforms that I propose would emerge in broader social reforms. We also need political reforms. We do need to raise awareness. That's what my work is devoted to. 
just getting people thinking differently about their news media in general. Often it's thought of as a commodity, not a public service. I like to use public yeah, education. Yeah, but that doesn't make people any more interested in reading. I mean, you teach at the University of Pennsylvania, where you have smart kids who are probably very interested in this stuff. I mean, most kids are on, for better or worse, they're on TikTok, they're on Facebook, they're on Instagram. They're simply not interested in these issues. How are you going to get them interested even in your ideal world? Are you going to force them to read this stuff? No, I won't. And as the father of young children, I know how futile that would be. But I would say that there are ways to engage even young people in, especially if they're creating their own media, if they're part of this media production, they're members of the local public media center, that this distinction between journalists and the rest of us is broken down. I think we do, there's slowly, we're gathering data that shows when people have constant dialogue with their local news media institutions, they're more engaged, they feel more invested. So I do think that's a starting point. Um, but again, I also don't think we should gauge everything by how commercially viable it is or whether people are consuming it or well, not. No, my, my point is not a, it's on its commercial viability. You've already made it clear that this is not a market-based reform. But I'm simply saying that to have this thing, you still need people to read it. You still need people to consume it, whether they're paying for it or not. You're so absolutely you right. Make it, uh, how do you think that the COVID years and Black Lives Matter in particular has impacted on your vision? It, it seems as if America is an odd place. And on the one hand, as you say, there's a crisis of local news and people don't read their local information. On the other hand, there's an increasingly passionate engagement, particularly of young people in local issues, but perhaps more in a, a direct manner. I think it's an excellent point. I mean, one thing that happened, of course, my book came out right weeks before the pandemic blew up. Um, but if anything, it's made these issues even more relevant. And one thing that did happen, as of 2019, there was a Pew study that showed that the vast majority of Americans had absolutely no idea that journalism was in crisis. We don't have new data to show on that, but what we do have is all kinds of evidence that there's been this growing appreciation for the role of journalism mm. around vaccines, around voting, um, and people are increasingly seeing journalism as an essential public service that, you know, it's again, not seen as just a commodity. So I think that's one data point that suggests that there is hope that people would care, even young people would care about supporting local journalism. In terms of getting to your, your vision, what is the role of regulation? Um, you wrote or oh, co-wrote an interesting book after Net Neutrality, Net Neutrality, uh, you, you, the subtitle, A New Deal for the Digital Age, Net Neutrality being an incredibly controversial subject, which fortunately seems to have gone away a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but in the news today, there's more stuff about Section 230, about the Biden administration looking more aggressively at this safe harbor legislation to protect uh, online giants like Google and Facebook. Could your vision of the future, Victor, be funded by the Facebooks and the Googles of the world and perhaps even the Amazons through revision of public policy, through changes in, 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 in law like Section 230? Well, I think, I mean, those are a number of different uh, policy initiatives and, and, and debates that are happening right now. And you're right, it's a moving target. I think that at the very least, we could be taxing those huge platforms to fund directly into a public media fund. 
Um, one piece of legislation that's being considered now doesn't quite do that. It asks, you mentioned the safe harbor uh, proposal, but it basically, basically allows newspapers to collude, to band together, uh, to create a united front, to better negotiate um, uh, business with the platforms, um, and, and, and then, at least in theory, uh, redirect that money towards journalism. I'm not the biggest fan of that proposal, but I do think the broader idea that the platforms could at least be contributing one stream into a larger fund, that, that's certainly something that's been considered. I've written in favor of that uh, in various places, and I think uh, that's something that should be on the table. Victor, you brought up the Norwegians. What about the French? The French are pioneering all sorts of models for funding or redistributing wealth in the journalism uh, ecosystem, taking money from the platforms like Google and redistributing them to local news. I think the Spanish as well. Are the Europeans onto something here? Well, the Europeans tend to be less market fundamentalist uh, about these issues. They're more, they're quicker to see the public good nature of news and information and understanding that the market's not going to support the, the level of information that we need as a democracy. So, um, so yes, I'd say they're one step ahead. They are still dealing with many of the same problems we are here in the States. We're hearing people call them news deserts in countries uh, around the world, but at least these countries also have robust public broadcasting systems that can act as safety nets for when the market fails to support commercial journalism. So I do think we should be looking internationally for best practices. This is a global problem. We all need to be working on it together. And Victor, finally, if we don't get this right, is it the end of democracy? Um, the obituary for democracy has already been written so many times on lots of different fronts, blaming everyone from Donald Trump to the broader Republican Party to January 6th. Can we ultimately blame the crisis of democracy on this news desert that you described, this crisis of journalism? Can democracy survive in America without robust local demo uh, local newspapers? I think it's important to recognize the vital role that journalism plays in supporting and, and basically ensuring the life of democracy. We all learn in school that democracy requires a free and by implication a functional press system. But now we have natural experiments happening almost on a monthly basis, a new studies coming out showing what happens to a local community when it loses its local newspaper. And sure enough, people are less civically engaged, less likely to vote. We see levels of corruption and polarization go up. So I, without being hyperbolic about the whole the, the relationship, I think we cannot solve the democratic crisis without also serving or solving the journalism crisis. It has to be part of that package. We can't, we can't do it without good journalism. Well, I like a bit of hyperbole, Victor, on my show. Um, and you've provided it even in an understated way. Your, your book, Democracy Without Journalism, is about to come out with a new edition, um, Confronting the Misinformation Society. It's as relevant today as it was when it came out two years ago. Congratulations on that book. What else would you suggest people read uh, on journalism, democracy, or otherwise? What do you read, Victor, these days? A couple of great books have just recently come out. There's one, I have it right here. It's called All the News That's Fit to Click by Caitlin Petrie, who's a professor at Rutgers, talking about the growing metrification of journalism and what's happening when journalists feel like they have to write clickbait all the time, uh, especially for, for Facebook. Another great book is Internet for the People 
Uh, it's talking yeah, about Ben, but... ben Tanoff was actually on the show. We did a good conversation with him. He's oh, great. Of... Yeah. I yeah. love, I love his book, love his work. So there's some good stuff out there. We just have to implement these ideas.